Greetings, listeners, domestic, international, and extraterrestrial. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley, and this is The Cast Files. I am a nerd who has somehow never seen The X-Files. And I watched it when it originally aired. The Cast Files is a podcast where we watch and discuss every episode of The X-Files, spoiler-free. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 16, Apocrypha. It originally aired February 16th. 1996. It was written by Frank Spotnitz and Chris Carter, just like part one, but directed by Kim Manners. Ah. Different director. Yes. A short bit about the episode. The episode's title is a reference to Biblical Apocrypha, which series creator Chris Carter felt was appropriate to the episode's thematic concerns, hidden documents and truths not brought to life. IMDb has a different take. Okay. They say... Mulder uncovers clues about a cover-up involving an alien entity and a sunken World War II aircraft. Scully pursues the man who murdered her sister. Pretty simplistic, but I guess it's not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) It's decent. All right, to the cast. We have Leno Britos as Luis Cardinal. (laughs) Whose name we have been mispronouncing brutally. Yep, the whole time. He was in Get Rich or Die Tryin', a 50-cent movie. Excellent. Frances Flanagan as Nurse. Her film debut was opposite Betty Davis in A Piano for Mrs. Simino. You know what Betty Davis has? Eyes. Yep. (laughs) Oh, what is that movie? What is that movie? The Final Girls? Okay. Oh, they had to play the song. Oh. (laughs) I was like, what what about that song? Mentioning that song makes you want to cry. Oh. (laughs) Got there. Brendan... Pfizer as Agent Pendrell. He is Jeff. Jesk. Jesk. <laughs> In The Boys. What? Huh. Mm-hmm. I do not remember a Jeff, and I cannot picture him in The Boys. I know. Now we have to go watch all of it again. Okay. <laughs> Peter Skular as Sick Crewman. He... I included because he was in Corner Gas as a bunch of people, including Denizen, Dunk Guy, Pet Man. But Corner Gas, we had another person recently who was in all of the Corner Gas things. Yeah. And nobody knew. Nobody being me. Yes. <laughs> knew what that was. That's right. Well, there's another person. So it seems Corner Gas seems to be the more recent version of Stargate SG-1. <laughs> <laughs> it's Canadian people doing yes. stuff. So it must be the younger folks are now in Corner Gas, and then the adult folks back then were gotcha. in Stargate. Which, by the way, Martin Evans as Major Domo was in Stargate SG-1. He was also in MacGyver. Major Domo? Yep. Is he one of the cigarette smoking organization? I don't know. Because Major Domo is a title. Is it? Yeah. What does it mean? I don't remember off the top of my head. Hmm. Uh, we also have... Harrison Coe as government man number two. I included him because he was also in Stargate SG-1. Because <laughs> everyone is. He was in Warehouse 13. Nice. As Vince, ex-husband. Ex-husband. Yeah. Of who, I wonder. I don't know. I didn't look up it any further. All right. Previously on the X-Files, a French guy has black eyes. Nobody cares about your sister, Scully. French guys are dying of radiation. Same thing happened to some Americans 50 years ago. Mrs. Gautier is shiny. Mulder wants that digital tape from Crycheck. Skinner gets shot. Crycheck is goth AF. Good job. Thank you. That was great. And now we are in Navy Hospital, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, 
August 19th, 1953. The My n- dad was not quite a year old. No. Yep. Was he also in Hawaii at this naval air base? Probably not. Naval air base. He was Is probably, that yeah, I think there's probably somewhere in central Indiana. Has he just always been in Indiana? Yes. He just never left Indiana? Most people don't. He's just never left Indiana at all, even even to cross the border over into, what, Kansas? Kansas? I don't know. <laughs> no. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Why? Because that is... No. Who cares? It's the middle of the country. It's the fly. It's all flyover. Geog- oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Indiana's the heartland, I'll have you know. Everything's the heartland. You know what? I lived in Louisiana. Guess what it was called? The heartland. The swampland? Nope. The Navy wanted <laughs> stop. I'm doing the guy. I know. <laughs> it took me a second to figure that out, though. Stop. I'm doing a thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have to get in sick, radiated guy mode again. The Navy <laughs> wanted to hear my story. They said I owed it to the dead. To tell them the truth. I told them where to stick the truth. (coughs) (laughs) I'm the last man who knows who killed the men aboard that submarine. Who knows it was a suicide mission, but I'll burn in hell before I tell the murderers who sent us there. That's hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) A radiated and dying soldier, sailor, soldier, sailor, tinker, spy. From Zeus Faber is debriefed in 1953. He says he's the last one who knows what killed those aboard the sub. He believes Johansson did what he had to do. He recounts a series of incidents aboard the submarine that we saw in part one, but we see even more of it here, where a contingent of the crew are dying from radiation burns and the rest contemplate mutiny against the captain. After a struggle, the captain is locked in the vessel's sick bay. As he gives up trying to force the door and turns around, the men look in horror, including Michael Buble, who is the only person I could look at after I knew it was Michael (laughs) Buble. The captain's eyes glaze over with the black oil. But one of the sailors strikes the captain with a spanner, which is apparently the largest wrench you've ever seen, knocking him unconscious. The oil abandons its host, escaping through the drain in the floor, answering some of our speculation couch questions. Speculation sofa. Was it? Oh, either way. I wrote speculation couch in my notes this time. That is not alliteration. Well, it is not. The sailor insists to the government interrogators, who are revealed to be a young Bill Mulder, who is a little cutie in this episode, (laughs) and cigarette smoking man. And the first elder. Is it? That's who it was, right? I only know that because the casting of these three guys is fantastic. It's so good. They look enough like the older versions that you could tell who it was who. It I could would, tell that that was supposed to be the first elder. That makes a lot of sense. So the sailor insists the government interrogators must make the truth known. When the sailor asks whether he can trust Mr. Mulder, Cigarette Smoky Man steps forward and says, You can trust us all. <laughs> I was going to make that so much more dramatic. <laughs> okay. I don't know why, but his voice still surprises me. (laughs) But this also answers our question, one of the 
or at least exclamations from speculation sofa from last week's episode, aka yesterday. That, <laughs> for us. <laughs> for, yes, that Bill Mulder is a bad guy and has been from the beginning. I don't know if it does. I think he's a little cutie, but a bad guy. I mean, probably, but I don't think this pegs him as a bad guy. I think it just is like, you know what, from the beginning, he was on the wrong side. Probably. I'm just saying his involvement here doesn't necessarily mean that. But we have, like you said, some answers. So my speculation of from last week of there being two entities, not accurate. Because this one gets out and goes through the grate. Yep. Uh, and we assume into the water and into the pilot. So I guess it can yeah. possess dead bodies. Because there's no way the pilot at the bottom of the sea was still alive. Right. It seems highly unlikely. Because how much time would have passed? They were out there looking for it. Right. So. Yeah, I guess so. Minimum of a couple days. Oh, yeah. And there was still air in the cockpit uh, in modern times. Yes, but that doesn't mean that... Oxygen. Right. Yeah, and probably not enough oxygen to keep a human body alive for No, and if it was just a slow leak, like it didn't fill up mostly with water at the beginning, what if it was just a drip? But he would have been dead. He was already way down there. Yeah. Unlikely that that pilot would have been alive. Yeah. To be possessed. Hmm. So... So now we have more questions. Yes, we do. Just different. Yes, now we have more yet different. We have shifted our questions. In modern times, Scully visits Skinner. But first we meet agents Fuller and Kaleka, who I'm immediately suspicious of, though I can't decide if it's because I think they're working for someone or if I just suspect they won't do a good job protecting Skinner. I can't tell where I am. But as soon as they showed up, I was like, uh-uh, don't like these two. Now, have we seen Fuller before in the X-Files, or is he yeah. just that guy, that actor in a bunch of stuff? I don't know. I feel like we've seen him before. I do, too. But I can't place him in which episode he would have been in, so maybe. But it, as soon as they showed up, I was like, I don't... Y- y'all aren't going to protect Skinner. I had no strong feelings. I had strong feelings, but they were confusing. Just like being a teenager. <laughs> all over <again>. Yes. <laughs> I had very strong, confusing feelings, and then I was, like, breaking out and sweaty. So, Scully tells them that they must make all resources available to identify who shot the assistant director, which they do not do. (laughs) Scully goes to Skinner as he's being wheeled from surgery to his recovery room. This is where we get a great shot of fantastic chest hair. There's little to no chest hair on TV these days, and it's a shame. You're a big fan of the chest hair? Apparently. I've grown into the chest hair. Mine's not curly at all, though. My chest hair is all straight. It just stands straight up like it's been spooked. <laughs> no. <laughs> Usually it's down. <laughs> but my chest hair is not curly at all, like you see on TV. You do see it on TV. My chest hair is not like the other boys. <laughs> your chest hair is not as seen on TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't have a little sticker across your one peck? No. I didn't say it had to be curly. I'm just saying. We have no hair. It's like everybody's hair is stripped from their bodies. And I think that we should bring it back. Oh, okay. I can do less grooming. Fantastic. (laughs) I'm excited. How do you feel about ear hair? (laughs) I feel strongly about ear hair in a different way. Oh, damn. (laughs) At the hospital, Skinner tells her that he recognized the man who shot him. Scully is adamant that Skinner needs to be protected and the man who shot him found. 
the cops on scene seem to be weirdly reluctant. They are, they're like, why, why would we have any of this information? It just happened. She's like, just do your goddamn jobs. And we're like, yeah, yeah. Scully, that's what we've been saying forever. She asks if they had any hair or fibers. And he's like, this happened hours ago. <laughs> yeah. You've, yeah, you've had hours to do this. Yeah. So you're just like, what? Keeping the restaurant open? Right. Let people go through the crime right. scene? I didn't say do you have the results. I said, do you have the fibers? <laughs> Did you pick anything up? Ugh. But it's interesting here that Skinner recognizes the guy because I had looked up a couple of things from the Blessed Way and remember, you know, so that we could find out who uh-huh. who actually shot Melissa Scully and whether we knew that we knew who, sh- who shot her, actually, but we didn't know if, how they wouldn't know. But right in that same time frame is when Skinner ran into Krychek and Cardinal. Mm-hmm. And so, just in case you guys have forgotten, because I forgot, that's how he recognized Cardinal. And he pins... Is this when he says Krychek was involved? No, Not this yet. is later. Now, on to the show. <laughs> now, back to the United States. Having arrived in the United States, Krychek and Mulder get into a rental car. Mulder talks a lot, but the possessed Krychek remains quiet and emotionless. Which I feel like Krychek would just do whether or not he had the black oil in his system, just to piss off Mulder. If he thought it was getting to Mulder, he would. Yeah. But he's kind of erratic. He's kind of a talker. He really is. Sometimes he's super sweaty. Sometimes he's nicely trim and showered and he looks clean. Yeah. Hard to tell where you're going to get. Yeah, but he is kind of a talker. So, unless... He was annoying Mulder with his silence. I think he'd talk a lot. I think that's what I was thinking. Like, if I were Crycheck in this scenario and I knew it would be getting to Mulder, I would also be quiet. It'd yeah. be great. He does, he does know how to get to Mulder. Yes. Which is nice. It's, it's real fun. It's a fun dynamic. As they take to the road, Mulder realizes they are being followed. Mulder pulls a gun on Crycheck and orders him to speed up. The trailing car pulls alongside and forces them down an embankment. The crash leaving Mulder dazed, since he kissed the dash during the crash. Krychek's driving? Terrible. Did he not take that driving class in FBI school? Because he really could have avoided this really easily. Or does maybe the Black Oil not know how to drive? I guess we don't know if the entity gets all of the knowledge of its host. I mean, it was in a downed plane. Maybe it was like, ah, shit, I'm in a plane! (laughs) What? (laughs) And then crashed the plane into the ocean because it didn't know how to fly. Gotcha. Okay. I see what you're saying. That's not what happened because the oil got to the guy after he was at the bottom of the ocean, but... Probably. But it really does help with the doesn't know how to, how things operate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh shit, I'm in a vehicle. That certainly speaks English. It seems to, yes. Or... And it probably didn't pick that up in 50 years of being on the bottom of the ocean. No. What is that show you like that we dressed up as for, um... What we do in the shadows? Mm-mm. That we dressed... Oh, Farscape. Yes. So do you think the, uh, the black oil is, like, the those Farscape injections where it actually just speaks its own language, but also anybody can understand it oh. based on whatever language they understand? I, I see. Or, like, the, uh, the translator fish in Hitchhiker's Guide? Yes. One or the other. Translator microbes. That's it. In Farscape, that's what they're called. Yes. We should get those. Those would be awesome. They would be. Also, actually, I think if we did that, no one would ever learn to read or write ever again. I think it'd still be useful to know how to read or write. I, it would be. I feel like it would be phased out, though. Hmm, possibly. Well, you just do voice memos forever. 
Voice memos for life, baby! But that's what they said when they invented the tape recorder. Somebody was like, nobody's ever going to read or write again! Probably. I don't. I only use a tape recorder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm using one right now for my notes. Look at this. Yes, I'm actually just sitting here next to a tape recorder. <laughs> One of the tailing car's occupants pulls an unharmed cry check out of his car and starts to take him away after demanding the digital tape, which Crycheck says he doesn't have. We know Crycheck doesn't have it, or at least no one's actually, actually, no one's patted him down. No, not one person. Crycheck might just have it in his back pocket for all we know. Even by the end of the episode, he may have had it on him the entire time. Right. It's like, or like in his little breast pocket, he just has it. Yeah. No one's ever patted him down. But yeah, he tells the guy he doesn't have it. So that guy takes him off away. We see a flashing light. That we've seen before. Yes. And the second occupant of the tailing car, who had gone around to check on Mulder, notices the light because it's very bright. And And hears the scream. Oh, yes. I was thinking that he was the one who screamed, but yeah, you're right. So he leaves Mulder because Mulder is badly injured or... Dazed? Mulder has a concussion, at least. And so the second guy leaves Mulder there momentarily to go check on his partner. We see another flash, which Mulder sees. Mulder hears that scream, and then Mulder passes out. And then that scene is Finn. Yes. (laughs) Next we go to the cigarette smoking man receiving the prognosis of the two men in the vehicle who were with Mulder and Krychek off the road. So we find them, this is, you know, X amount of time later, and he orders the medical staff to destroy the bodies, despite the fact that the men are currently alive. Although, we all agree it won't be long, so maybe just make them as comfortable as possible for the next few hours, then dispose of the body. They set up this scene to try to make the cigarette smoking man look heartless, but the (laughs) very beginning of it... The doctor says the prognosis is these guys are going to die. Mm-hmm. So it's not outlandish for him to say destroy the bodies. Oh, I, yeah. It's funny how they set it up because if you're paying attention, you're like, but but yeah. <laughs> the doctor is just shocked. So these men aren't dead yet. N- not only is the doctor shocked, the doctor is shocked and the camera is in his face. <laughs> he has the, the just, there's no space around his face. Zoom times 320. Just right up in that guy's nose. But the cigarette smoking man does not say, finish them, like the end of uh, Mortal Kombat, <laughs> and then dispose of their bodies. He's just like, just dispose of their bodies. They're dying, dude. We all know that. So we're kind of on the cigarette smoking man side on this. At least not against him. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've decided his call makes sense in this scenario. Mulder wakes up in a hospital and explains to Scully that he ran into Crycheck in Hong Kong and that they returned to Washington to get the tape. Scully tells Mulder that Skinner is also in the hospital. She has the DNA markers that she got from our favorite tech, who has puppy dog eyes for Scully, and they are identical to those of the man who murdered Melissa. So she's getting closer. But my question is, how did they get his DNA at Melissa's murder scene? Did he spit on Melissa also? I mean... That would be super weird. It would be. It was weird of him to spit on Skinner. It really was. It was like he wanted to be caught. Or he never thought he would be. Either way, it's just odd. I mean, wouldn't you spit on bodies if you knew you weren't going to get caught? No. It's no. not like the Even first Even if I thing wanted to be do. disrespectful to them, I would pee on them. What if you had just come back from the john? 
You just stand over there with your dick in your hands just until waiting you for like twenty minutes, <laughs> trying to concentrate, picturing waterfalls. I think that might be how I get caught. Yeah, <laughs> standing over a dead body for twenty minutes. Yes. Yep. I would say if you're going to do it, just spit on them at that point, or kick them like right in the kidney with the point of your <laughs> shoe. I don't know. The syndicate meet to deliberate on the situation with the tape and Skinner, which they believe has been destroyed in a car bombing. Oh, yeah, from one of those other episodes. But it wasn't. The well-manicured man, who is one of our favorites, makes clear his disdain for the haphazard work by the CSM's assassins and scorns his dependence on violence and murder to achieve his goals. Because... We've just seen the well-manicured man be very good with intel. What he shares, what he doesn't share. He's really good. He's He's a great character. He really is. I'm so happy every time he shows up. I am too. When I see him in the cast list, I'm like, yes, so good. So they're not happy. And they will be having a couple of conversations about this. Meanwhile, Scully goes to see Skinner again, tells him... The DNA markers match Melissa's murder. Skinner essentially tells Scully that she needs to be careful looking into why they don't want to find her sister's murderer and his shooter. He says something like, anger is a luxury. That you cannot afford. And she's like, double middle fingers to you. You got shot in the stomach. I'm going to go find this guy. And she doesn't back down and leaves. Yeah, and that's when he tells her about... Crycheck. Crycheck being involved with that guy. Yep. She's like, Crycheck, we just had him. Yep. Mulder just had him. They just had the tape or they were getting closer to the tape. It's all connected. So she goes home to type and have a voiceover. In this voiceover, she basically says she's reopening this case. She is requesting, since they're denying her request to look for her sister's murder, she's requesting that the Bureau put a lot of resources towards finding Crycheck. Mulder has had the diving suit shipped to his office. Um, The oil, a 50-weight diesel oil that was used in the sub and the airplane back in in the day, matches that found on Gautier and Mrs. Gautier, who was found unconscious in the men's room in Hong Kong. It has now jumped over to Crycheck or whatever. This is where Mulder explains his theory, and here is what he says. I think it's a medium. A medium being used by some kind of alien creature that uses it to body jump. I wish they could see your hand. (laughs) It's very important. I think that it came off of whatever they pulled from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It's been waiting 50 years down there for another host, another body to bring it up to the surface. This is when I wrote... I take it back. I don't want any answers. Well, that's good. Because you're getting <laughs> the, two. This is this is a step too far for me. It's just regular old diesel oil. It's not alien goo. He's not raw dog and alien goo. He's raw dog and 50 weight diesel. Apparently. Ugh. Now we see the lone gunman. They go ice skating as a ruse to pick up an envelope that reportedly contains the tape and has been left in a locker inside the ice rink. The gunmen give the envelope to Mulder, who has been waiting in a car outside the rink, but they find that the envelope contains only an empty tape case. I have not memorized the actors' names who play the lone gunman yet, but when I saw three names together in the opening credits, I was like, oh, gunmen are in this one. Sweet. So, we all know how I feel about the lone gunman. 
Do you think the lone gunmen are like other characters where that where you have to use them every, you know, X amount of time or you lose possession of their character names? Like when a company owns Spider-Man, if they don't put him in something, then they lose it and somebody else can own it? Doubtful, because I think Chris Carter created them, so he probably owns the rights to them outright. There's no reason for them to be in this episode, or most episodes, is my point. I think there's a reason for them to be in every episode. I hope they get their own spinoff. <laughs> I have some news. <laughs> I've warmed up to them, actually. Quite a bit. Well, that's good. That makes half of us. <laughs> Now we jump to another scene, because in these two episodes, we jump, 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 jump. Nobody's together. Um, so at an apartment used by CSM, Crycheck enters, flanked by Louis Cardinal. CSM, in exchange for the tape, tells Crycheck that he has what you want. The CSM is completely unsurprised when Crycheck's eyes glaze over with the black oil. It says, I've been expecting you. Why? You heard about this thing 40 years ago. Yeah. How would you be expecting him? It's not... Like, that thing went to the bottom of the ocean, then came up for a little while, did some stuff, hung out with smoking organization, went back to the bottom of the ocean, came back up for a little while. It didn't bounce back and forth. There's just no way. Maybe he knew what it was based on the French uh, sailors who died. He And the fact that they've got the UFO that it came from. Right. But... He put it all together and knew that... But why, of all people... Well, it couldn't go to Bill Mulder, but it wouldn't know about Bill Mulder because it wasn't in that guy. It wouldn't know about any of these people until it got to Crycheck. Then it has to have the knowledge of its host. It must. So Crycheck just sucks at driving. Yeah, Crycheck just sucks at driving. Or he wanted to get knocked over, or the car knocked oh, you know the what? ditch that so would... that he could kill those guys and right. get that, away from Mulder. That would also make sense. That would make a lot of sense. Get caught so you can get away. Yeah. Because you're not really worried about whoever's yeah. going to catch you that's in this car. Yeah. That would make sense. All right. But, but yes, it doesn't make any sense that CSM would have been waiting for him. Or that if he had been, that he being the entity, if the entity came back, it doesn't make any sense that it would track down CSM. Yeah, it wouldn't know about the digital tape. No. It wouldn't know anything. But it, as soon as it surfaced, it was looking for the digital tape. That's what it seems like. It's pretty flimsy. Well, that's never happened in the X-Files before. <laughs> the CSM collectively meets with the other members of the syndicate later because they're not happy. They are highly unhappy with his actions regarding the digital tape, the salvaged submarine, and the attempted murder of Skinner. So they've called him in to explain himself. Again. Yes. Although a calm CSM assures them that the tape has now been destroyed and that he will take care of Skinner for good, this neither convinces nor appeases the well-manicured man who is the best character in this entire series. Hard to disagree with that. The well-manicured man also says that there is a police sketch of the... Uh, the Louis Cardinal. Yes, I was going to say the assassin, but he didn't actually assassinate him. So the potential assassin, but he did actually shoot him. So whatever. Louis Cardinal. And I was wondering how often police sketches are actually useful. I got to say rarely, because the last time we saw a police sketch, it was in the episode where he was gooing people up and yeah. sucking their fat. Yeah. That police sketch didn't really look like him. No. And this one doesn't look like Louis Cardinal. Either. No, it doesn't. And then also thinking, all right, 
this is the X-Files world, so maybe whatever. So I looked it up, and I just got this quick fact from some guy who posted an article on LinkedIn, so take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> but uh, like I said, I looked real quick. Police sketches from a, an article called Police Suspect Sketches, How Accurate and Useful Are They? by George Babnick. Hard statistics are difficult to come by, but some research suggests that facial sketches or composite pictures of suspected criminals are useful less than 20% of the time, which still seemed high to me. Other studies put the percentage even lower, maybe as low as 8%, which is not surprising. One, because police are not artists, for one. Two, people recalling what a person who they've only seen one time during a traumatic event, their yeah. recall is going to be garbage. Like, yeah. more garbage than our recall actually is. All you have to do is think of the most famous police sketch and how close that was. Was that the... Um, the Unabomber. Yeah, and it was just all... Wasn't he just wearing a hoodie? Was it hoodie and big old sunglasses, and he had a mustache. Yeah. And he looked nothing like Ted Gazinski. So they're not useful, like most of the things that the police do. Mulder and the lone gunman attempt to obtain clues from the envelope when an indentation for someone writing using the tape case is found. Byers and Langley discuss various super high-tech ways the feds have of recovering such information. We have all met these people. Where you're just like, what? Why? Also, I bet the government has spent money on these things when you really just need a pencil. It was mildly amusing, but... You would think they would know how to do just a pencil rubbing. Would you? Yes. Have they done anything yet? Yes. What? They acquired the envelope that had the empty tape case. Yeah, they... I really feel like... they hacked into that military base to get Mulder and Scully IDs. Oh, yeah. That was a thing. That was a thing they did. That was definitely a thing they did. I feel like getting something from a locker at an ice rink. I could do that. Probably. If you had a team. I wouldn't need a team. Yeah, you would. No. You have to look around to make sure all the government spooks aren't paying attention to you? Nobody's paying attention to me. I am. (laughs) Are you a government spook? (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny that. That's probably true. Mulder uses a pencil to shade in the indentations and reveals a New York City phone number. And then he makes fun of the lone gunman. He calls the number, managing to connect to the headquarters of the syndicate. He just calls right into that little room they've all, they're always hiding in on 46th Street in New York. Mulder speaks to the well-manicured man, who then tells his assistant to tell Mulder where he will meet him and when, even though he's already decided. So he could have just said it into the phone. Scully learns from background checks that the man they're looking for is Louis Cardinal, a Nicaraguan mercenary and assassin who worked with the CIA in Central America. None of us are surprised. Now they talk about how he was graduate of the School of Americas and part of Iran Contra. And if they mention the School of Americas one more time, I'm going to have to talk about it. Yep. The well-manicured man and Mulder meet that night, exactly three hours after Mulder made that phone call. Because I was listening about when and where they were going to meet. Yeah, he got from... D.C. to New York in three hours. Everything's so fast. You think a train could probably do that? He definitely didn't drive in three hours. No, he didn't, he, no, man. Maybe? There's probably a fast train that goes from D.C. to New York. If it had been Boston to New York, I feel like I would be like, yeah, three hours makes oh, sense. Oh, easy, yeah. But I don't know. I don't know how far D.C. is by train in hours or miles <laughs> or anything, actually. 
Me neither. How many trains do you have to get on? Hopefully just one. Do you just get on one and just go? Or do you get on one and then have to change trains somewhere? I think there's probably a train from D.C. to New York. It would make sense. I don't know. We should find out someday. Somehow. Uh, but yeah, they meet in Central Park. The well-manicured man and Mulder have a discussion. They talk about the nature of the submarine, which had been deployed to locate and recover the crashed UFO. I love the well-manicured man because Mulder will ask a question that he is willing to answer, and he just straight up answers it. Yeah. Tell me about the submarine. All right, well, we had a submarine, and there was a (laughs) UFO, and we sent the submarine out, and then they couldn't get it that time, so we got it a different time, and that's all of the stuff. Now what? (laughs) It's great. This is not useful information for you. You can't prove anything, so I'll just tell you. Yeah. It's it's so good. And you you know that there's more to the story. Of course there is. But he knows just how much to tell to make it sound like it's the whole story without actually giving away any of the real details. And it's building a little bit of trust Mm -hmm. because it is real information. Yeah. So good. After a long conversation, Mulder goes to leave and is surprised when the well-manicured man asks where the tape is. Mulder tells him that Krychek has it, but realizes that, like himself, the well-manicured man is not aware of Krychek's location. See, well-manicured man didn't ask about the tape. Well-manicured man was surprised when Mulder brought up the tape. Oh, that's what it was. He didn't know that the tape still existed. That's right. I remember he was surprised and I couldn't remember which comment it was but you're right he, he was, tries to hide the fact that he's surprised but he doesn't but he doesn't yeah that's right so that's when Mulder basically rolls his eyes and is like you don't know where he is either and that's when well manicured man says well anyone can be gotten to and also right before he says that he says how do you know that we haven't already killed him and he's like you haven't killed him derp <laughs> <laughs> which is how Mulder has an argument with somebody <laughs> And the well-manicured man warns that anyone can be gotten to, which you well know. And that prompts Mulder to go call Scully and tell her to check on Skinner. Scully, it's me. Scully finds out that Skinner is being transferred to another hospital and the police guard she ordered had been called off. So Skinner was just all by himself. She catches up with the ambulance and um, as it begins to depart and she joins Skinner in the back of the vehicle. But while they're at a light, you just have the ambulance driver in the front, and then you have Skinner in the back, and now you have Scully. And they're stopped, and they she hears something happen on the roof, and she's looking at the IV bag, and it's jiggling, and she's like, mm-mm, don't like this. So she goes to the back door, kicks it open, and kicks it right into Cardinal, who fires wildly, misses, and then runs off. So they have a brief chase through traffic. In this brief chase is when a stunt person almost gets their head crushed by a car. Oh, that was... Yeah, it was too close. (laughs) Whoever did that. Didn't like it. Kudos to you. Oh. Made my butthole pucker. (laughs) Yeah, it was was rough. Uh, He gets hit by a car and rolls up on the windshield like they do in the stunts. Yeah. But when he falls off onto the ground, onto the pavement, another car nearly just... Just pops his head like a grape. Either really good stunt or, holy crap, really poorly planned stunt. Yeah, that was scary. Scully catches up with him and holds him at gunpoint. She repeatedly demands to know whether he killed her sister, although he ultimately begs her to believe that Krychek is to blame. Cardinal also claims that he will tell her everything she wants to know. Scully chooses not to shoot him, though I think she should have shot him just a little. (laughs) 
And upon the arrival of the police, Scully shows them her badge because they're screaming at her to put her gun down, shows her badge, and then they take Cardinal over from there, which we know is R.I.P. that guy. Yeah. Mulder and Scully talk on the phone where Scully tells him about Cardinal and Mulder tells her he's looking for his, um, his rental car agreement and also to buy two tickets to North Dakota. What every woman wants to hear. Hell yeah. That's good to know. <laughs> Happy anniversary. <laughs> Thanks. After learning that the UFO is being stored in an abandoned missile silo in North Dakota, Scully and Mulder travel there and break into the complex. The complex of 200 silos. It's already been broken into. That's true. Yeah. They re-break into. They also break into. Still 200 silos. There's a lot of silos. Yeah. I don't know nearly enough about nuclear missile silos to know anything about anything. Yeah, anything about anything. Me either. It just seemed like a lot. They enter one of the many bunkers in the area and journey underground, eight stories at least, to a series of tunnels where they find irradiated soldiers, but no missiles. Um, Apparently, these silos were supposed to be filled with concrete at some point after the U.S. signed a disarmament treaty, but they were never filled with concrete. Just like the initiative in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. Fill that shit with concrete, yo. Suddenly, the lights come on and they are pursued and detained by more soldiers. As the agents are led outside, the cigarette-smoking man arrives via helicopter, as he's wont to do. First, when they get discovered, Mm -hmm. Mulder and Scully just do a light jog away from the bad guys. (laughs) It's so... It's so just disorienting how <laughs> how recreational they look. <laughs> that's a great, yeah, that's a great description. CSM brushes off Mulder's angry accusations. And behind the door that Scully and Mulder had almost reached, the door with the numbers 1013 on them, Crycheck, that's where Crycheck is. So they were almost to him. Uh, CSM walks up to the door, kind of looks at it, and then walks away. Poor Crycheck. Yes. See if I, he's having a bad day inside. He is. So we see, we hear Crycheck vomiting, and we see him painfully regurgitating the black oil. It pours into the spirals of the symbol on top of the UFO that's in that room. It looks like a rough scene to do and be around and listen to and everything. Yeah. So here's a bit of trivia about that scene. Okay. The depiction of the oil in this scene was originally filmed using a magnetic fluid pulled along with magnets. Although the end result of this was deemed to not be menacing enough and looked a little bit comic. To fix this, the soundstage used to represent the submarine's interior was rebuilt so that it could be rocked back and forth with the movement being used to guide the flow uh, of a different liquid. So they're physically moving this whole thing around to make the... The stuff flow. Uh, the effect was then enhanced digitally in post-production. Hmm. Um, CSM knows that Crycheck is inside room 1013, and he leaves after ordering that the irradiated bodies be disposed of that are in there. Here's a bit more about that oil. For the scene in which Crycheck expels the black oil into the UFO, Nicholas Lee wore a mask that uh, fitted over mask. his face okay. with many tubes that ran through his hair and down his back. Fake oil was then pumped out of the tubes from off camera. I could tell it was a fake face, but I thought it was like an entirely fake head on top of a fake body. Yeah, that's good. 
The prosthetics took over an hour to be applied to Lee, and while wearing the appliance, he found it too difficult to see and had to breathe through a straw. (laughs) It gets worse. Just as the crew finished applying the prosthetics, everyone took a lunch interval. Shut the fuck up. Annoyingly even more. Oh, yeah, I'd be pissed. You can not see and you have to breathe through a straw. And you're just going to leave me here? Uh Uh-uh. I'm ripping that shit off. We're doing this all over again. Later, after we see all of this, Skinner comes into Mulder's office where Mulder thanks him for putting his career and life on the line for them. Skinner says, this isn't my crusade, Agent Mulder. A woman was murdered. I mistakenly thought that we could bring the man who committed that crime to justice. And Mulder says, wait, what do you mean, mistakenly? Skinner says, this is what I need to talk to Scully about. And we're like, oh, they're not doing their jobs again. Justice is still not being served ever. It never is. I'm sorry. Have we ever seen it be served? I've seen you got served. Okay. I actually haven't. That was a lie. <laughs> Why are you I'm lying? Sorry. I'm so sorry to everybody. <sighs> Skinner has something he needs to tell Scully, whom Mulder meets at Melissa's grave. He reveals that Louis Cardinal was found dead in a cell of an apparent suicide, which we all know is not suicide. It is not justice either, by the way. Well, at least he's dead. I mean, he's dead, but meh. Meh. Scully contemplates that the men they are dealing with will face no justice, which is also what Skinner just said. (laughs) (laughs) She also recalled what Christopher Johansson said, conscience is the dead haunting them, which, whatever. (laughs) You know what? Grieve however you need to grieve. Meanwhile, a disheveled Krychek hammers on a small window built into door 1013, screaming for help because now he's depossessed. The silo again. Yes. The silo, however, has been abandoned once again, leaving Crycheck trapped underground. And here's my final bit of little trivia for this episode. The door that Crycheck is trapped behind in this episode, March 1013, is the birth month and date of series creator Chris Carter. Hmm. 1013 is also the name of Carter's production company. Okay. He's in October, baby. All right. Speculation sofa time. All right. And then I've got some... Um, I've got some insight into the problem with the myth art that oh. I would like to talk about. Okay. Do you think Crycheck gets out of here? Yes. Okay, why? Because the CSM is going to need him for something. So you think Cigarette Smoking Man is going to come back for him? I think so. Okay. I don't know if it's going to be him specifically or his organization. I think we're going to see Crycheck again. Hmm. I don't know if the Cigarette Smoking Organization is too keen on him. Yeah. They've tried to kill him multiple times. And then he started selling the secrets from that digital tape. I didn't say it would make sense. I just said, I think we're going to see him again. (laughs) That's CSM is the only person who actually knows he's in there. Yes. So if he gets out, I feel like CSM has to be involved. I don't. Hmm. I don't think that the entity went into the UFO just to sit in there for another 50 years. It has to have a way to launch itself up and out. Yeah. Do you think... So Crycheck could just follow it out. Yeah, that could work. I mean, there's probably a ladder in there, I would assume, for like maintenance and everything from, you know, back when it was operational. Right. So it's going to be a long climb up, but I believe it's doable. And it would just be incredibly weird if the entity was like, I just want to be into my UFO, but then I'll just sit in this silo forever. That stays there. Ah, I'm home. I think it's going to, you know, shoot up and out. I live here now. Make a hole in the ceiling. That would make sense. Yeah. I do think that we're going to see Crycheck again. Yeah. That's why I think that. Okay. Makes sense. Any other speculation? Uh, No, I think that's all I got. All right. 
So I have a little bit about the problem with the myth arc, because these two are with the myth arc, and we've had some trouble with it before. Oh. Or we have had constant trouble with it. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, This is also our fourth alien species that we've seen. Yes. Director Kim Manners had directed a number of standalone Monster of the Week episodes, but this was his first mythology-centered episode. Manners explained that, quote, there is some individual creative contribution from the directors, unquote, in standalone episodes, but that with the mythology episodes, quote, what you need as a director is to be sure that the performances are there and that the yarn is presented in the cleanest and most interesting fashion, unquote. Mm, you don't get enough input. You don't get enough input. And all of the problems with the myth arc are solely Chris Carter's. Mm, okay. From the AV Club's Zach Handlin on the general impression of Apocrypha. And also he is from the Monsters of the Week book. I don't really know what's going on in mythology episodes. I never have. <laughs> and I don't mean that I lost the thread once the writers stopped trying to make all the pieces fit. I mean that right now, even after having watched Apocrypha and the episode that preceded it, and all the other mythology episodes before that, I don't know the details. To me, it's just creepy stuff happening for obscure reasons to the characters I care about. So I wanted to put that back to back with what Kim Manners said about it being Chris Carter's job to make it all make sense. Okay. And as the viewer, you're just like, none of this makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. The cigarette smoking organization tends to have uh, fluid motivations, I guess. Yeah, which is weird. They're not just into UFO stuff. Or are they just in the UFO stuff? I can't tell. Ugh, now I'm confused. I have a final bit of trivia. Terrorist Timothy McVeigh was a fan of the X-Files. And he asked his defense team to watch the episode Apocrypha with him to showcase its, quote, covert meetings in the night, secret goings on, and ghost government. Oh, good. At McVeigh's request, his attorneys included questions on the X-Files in the jury screening questionnaire. Oh, wow. So. Okay. That's where we're at. Yay. As a society. I love getting quotes from Timothy McVeigh. Right. All right, who are you shipping? Well, since he brought her flowers in this episode, even though she's gone, still (laughs) shipping Mulder and (laughs) Melissa. Because they had chemistry, and I liked them together. They sure did. She should have stuck around longer. Maybe the alien entity can seep into her dead body and bring her back. Ew, how long has she been dead? Five months? She's been dead and buried for five months? <laughs> uh, who are you shipping? The Scully and Pendrell, of uh, course, because they need to just go to dinner. He would just sit across the table looking at her with his big puppy dog eyes and be like, what is the weird shit that you've seen, Scully? And then he would just listen. Mm. Be adorable. I see. How are you surviving? Oh, man, I don't have anything yet. Because yeah. this was a lot going on, but not a lot going on yeah. with the general public. Right, yeah. So, oh, putting myself in Crychek's shoes, and I climb out of the silo after the UFO punches a hole. I think that's... That's how it's Yeah, I was going to suggest that if you didn't come around to it. How, you know, I'm going to do what the um, the two cops in the, the hospital did and just fuck off. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> All right. I want to leave you with one last thing. Do you have anything else that you want to add for this episode? Uh, no. All right. Then, in the immortal words from X-Files fandom, PPG Cortez from 11-3-2016. 
Okay. Kind of felt sorry for Krychek in that, I mean, just imagine it. You go to the bathroom to take a piss. <laughs> Next thing you know, you vomiting alien virus on a UFO <laughs> in a sealed silo. That's a hell of a jump. Yep. That's worse than the jump from uh, deep sea suit to your own house. Yes. It's way worse. Yep. PPG Cortez. It's worse than... Fucking nailed it. Yeah, it's worse than from your house to a bathroom in Hong Kong. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't know if it's worse than... Bottom of the ocean? Yeah, bottom of the ocean. Wherever he was Where before. Where question mark to bottom of the ocean yeah. 50 years in the future? It's rough. Yeah. All right. Well, good episode. I yep. liked it. And until next week, give me a tagline. What did you always say? Look at the stars? I try to say something about... Yeah. Go outside, see if you can see the stars or if there's too much light pollution. The Cast Files is produced by Kristen Riley and Dave Reed. Edited by Dave Reed. You can find us on Twitter at Cast Files. You can find me on Twitter at Dave Reed. That's D-A-I-V-E-R-E-E-D. You can email us at thecastfiles. That's the with two E's at gmail.com. If you could please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and tell us that we are doing phenomenal things. Artistic, wonderful things. We are raising the bar on podcasting. We would love you forever for that. We have a Tee Public store. You can go buy t-shirts and stuff there. Music by Hal Six. Logo by Art. That's O-O-K-A-A-R-T. 